So, let's say you're a middle-aged man seeking to get into cannabis, but not living in a country where it's available to buy legally and no friends or acquaintances who use the substance anymore. What strategies for acquiring the drug might you wish to follow? Well, I tried three different approaches before finding the one that works for me, so here's how not to do it in three overcomplicated ways. Strategy one, find some random cannabis user who can either suggest an independent vendor who might be willing to sell you the dried plant directly or buy your cannabis off the aforementioned user if they're looking to make a few quid themselves. The only person I knew at the time who somewhat fitted the above description is Dave. Dave was, and still is, Sarika's husband. Sarika, at the time, was my peer supervision partner. And she had shared with me in the years we'd been working together that both she and her spouse both had their own particular vices. Dave's was cannabis, and Sarika would occasionally cheat on Dave with other men. Every three months or so, Dave and Sarika would visit Dave's ageing mother in Shrewsbury, who lived with her oldest son, Peter. Peter would, there and then, roll Dave about 12 joints from his stash. Dave would pay Peter a sum far exceeding the price of the raw materials, and then hand over the booty to Sarika, who would dole out a single joint a week usually on Friday nights, for Dave to enjoy. Sirika's addiction, if you want to call it that, didn't involve Dave in helping her to sustain it and or moderate it, as that might have put their marriage in jeopardy. Interesting backstory, though. Both Sirika and Dave had cheated on their then spouses 30 years previously in a workplace romance which had subsequently evolved after the double divorce into marriage, children and their large and very beautiful one million pound property near Harrow, where I would go once a month to perch with a cup of tea amidst their oil paintings and leather sofas for our supervision sessions. Sarika preferred to talk and strategize about her sex and love addiction with me, perhaps because she knew that I wouldn't talk about it with anyone else without changing names, locations, as well as other salient details, which I have. I don't know whether she also addressed the issue of cheating on Dave in her own personal therapy. I mean, souls who go to therapy don't necessarily divulge the very depths of their souls to their therapist. It, it really depends on what kind of personality type you are, I, I find. Anyway, this state of affairs with regard to sex, drugs and rock and roll seemed to work for both Dave and Sarika. They had arrived at a system for keeping their relationship with each other and themselves on track and when she wasn't moaning about him, Sarika would often describe her relationship with Dave as falling somewhat in the happily married category, or at least the relatively happily married category. And with both Sarika and I being middle-aged bods, 
we understood that to be in a relatively happy partnership or a partnership at all really at our age was not only a blessing but somewhat rare. Knowing Dave was a cannabis user, I considered asking Sarika whether Peter, via Dave, might source me some weed, but I didn't think this request would go down well with her. Sarika's favourite word, she would use it at least four or five times in our peer supervision sessions together, was boundaries. Sarika was obsessed with the conceptual limits and demarcations between herself, the world and others. The answer to all her clients' issues, it, it would appear, I mean, of course, I'm slightly, you know, over-egging the pudding here, but it would appear that the answer to all her clients' issues and all my clients' issues was really down to defining, establishing, and maintaining boundaries. D-E-M, define, establish, maintain. Then boundaries, then boundaries, then boundaries, was what Sarika, I would say, was kind of about in terms of, you know, how she functioned as a therapist. And this, this to me in retrospect, didn't know at the time, but in retrospect, this to me made sense in terms of her personality style, which was an Enneagram 9 with an 8 wing. Nines. Nines are accepting, trusting, and stable. They want everything to go smoothly and be without conflict, but they can also tend to be complacent, simplifying problems and minimizing anything upsetting. They typically have problems with inertia and stubbornness. Eights. Eights are self-confident, strong, and assertive, protective, resourceful, straight-talking, and decisive. Eights feel they must control their environment, especially people. Eights typically have problems with their tempers and with allowing themselves to be vulnerable. Of course, like every other mammal on this planet, Sirika was very skillful at using, establishing boundaries to create uh, a chilled and comfortable space for herself, two by four, slap by slat, in which she might then relate to Dave, to her clients, in a safe and secure way. Whilst at the same time, there was also Sarika's secret room, wherein you might find Sarika's stairway, that other place which no one else, and sometimes not even Sarika, knew about. That place where we might say desire outstrips all our boundaries, our own personal stairway to heaven, if you like, which is often also a stairway of transgression. I was never entirely sure what Sarika's stairway was really about for her. I mean, presumably the never-ending search for novelty, love and self-transcendence, just like, you know, everyone else's stairway. But I don't suppose we ever reached that understanding between us. All I knew was that it was a secret stairway, the kind Stephen Dunn writes about in his poem, The Stairway, which goes like this. The architect wanted to build a stairway and suspended with silver, almost invisible guy wires in a high-ceilinged room, a stairway you couldn't ascend or descend except in your dreams but first because wild things are not easily seen if what's around them is wild he'd make sure the house that housed it 
was practical, built two by four by two by four, slat by slat, without ornament, the stairway would be an invitation to anyone who felt invited by it. And, depending on your reaction, he'd know if friendship were possible. The house he'd claim as his, but the stairway would be designed to be ownerless, tilted against any suggestion of a theology, disappointing to those looking for politics. Of course the architect knew that over the years he'd have to build other things the way others desired, knew that to live in this world was to trade a few industrious hours for one beautiful one. Yet every night, when he got home, he would imagine, as he walked in the door, his stairway going nowhere, not for sale, and maybe some you to whom nothing about it need be explained, waiting, the wine decanted, the night about to unfold. I love this poem. Perhaps because in some way not entirely disconnected to our theme, I read a lot of Enid Blyton as a child, my favourite series being the Magic Faraway Tree books. The Faraway Tree series, published very early on in her writing career, 1939, is about a magic tree inspired by the Norse mythology that had fascinated Blyton as a child, the idea of the Yggdrasil tree placed at the center of the cosmos and rising through a number of worlds is found in uh, northern Eurasia and forms part of shamanic law and ritual shared by many people of that region. And this seems to be a very, very ancient conception, this, this sort of mythical, magical tree, perhaps based on the pole star, the center of the heavens, and the image of the omphalic tree in Scandinavian myth. Anyway, among Siberian shamans, a cardinal tree, often thought to be an ash, may also be used as a kind of ladder by which we might ascend to the heavens. What was it? about the Faraway Tree series, I have often wondered, that struck me so forcibly as a child so that even when returning to the books later, I was still completely bowled over and enchanted by the adventures they contained. Reading the books again now, I recognize how archetypally escapist they are. And, you know, simple psychodynamics, I often wanted to escape my family home, escape the constant bickering and the raised voices of my parents, escape the boredom or sense of alienation, as well as the, you know, the constraints of this consciousness, or at the time, that consciousness, which of course is still this consciousness, that me growing up in South Africa during the apartheid era. I still read to escape, very much so, even though... I'm not especially interested in escapist literature, such as, you know, fantasy, detective novels, science fiction, perhaps because I like to be tethered in some way to reality, rooted, like the magic tree in Enid Blyton's book, to or in this world, the one, you know, you and I both share, even whilst exploring those alternate escapist options. This is also, I think, why I fear trying psychedelics, even whilst feeling quite comfortable with my green girlfriend, with cannabis. 
I fear, what do I fear? I fear psychotic breaks with reality or hallucinations. I, I fear losing myself entirely, even though that's exactly what I also want to do. You know, ego, death, bring it on. I think what it's more about for me is having access to a somewhat different way of seeing and being in the world. Altered, yes, but altered in a way that feels more awake uh, rather than soporific or anesthetized, asleep to oneself. In order to have this experience, though, I would need to find someone to sell me some weed. So what I did was, you know, when walking with Max in our local park, just starting to size up those individuals consuming the substance on whichever bench they'd chosen to do so. I didn't want to approach anyone under age, obviously, or someone who looked as if they might be threatened by a bearded middle-aged dweeb with his dog making inquiries about the plant matter in their roll-ups. But eventually, after a week or so of careful reconnoitering, I settled on these two guys. I think they were kind of in their 20s, early 30s. They're often in the park, and occasionally I talk to them about Max and his highly capricious predilection towards the balls that I try to get him to go and fetch. One day, he'd be David Beckham running back and forth like a little star, his desires and mine perfectly synchronized, whereas the next day, you know, he'd come across all, mm, wouldn't touch that with a barge pole in terms of retrieving and dropping the ball at my feet. But that's okay, because Max is, <laughs> Max is, I am 100% sure of this, Max is a typical Enneagram 7. Sevens. Sevens are extroverted, optimistic, versatile, and spontaneous, playful, high-spirited, and practical. They can also misapply their many talents, becoming overextended, scattered, and undisciplined. They constantly seek new and exciting experiences, but can become distracted and exhausted by staying on the go. They typically have problems with impatience and impulsiveness. And I think he's a seven because there really seems to be no rhyme or reason to Max's desire or lack of desire for his absolute favorite glow-in-the-dark chuck-at-ball game. Anyway, my two new Sloaner friends would always find his canine volatility and my evident annoyance at it highly amusing. So I woke up to them. Hey guys, I'm looking to buy some weed, was I think how I framed my request after, you know, practicing it a few times whilst walking to the park. Might you have the number of someone who could provide me with... And here, I, I think I might have petered out, you know, completely gormless in terms of the appropriate vocabulary. The stoners then explained to me that their usual dealer was away on holiday, but they'd be more than happy to sell me some of theirs. How much did I want? I had no idea about the, you know, standard quantities. But luckily, before setting out, Google had given me a little helping hand by explaining that In general, weed is sold in one gram, or an eighth, or a quarter, or a half ounce or ounce. Which I found very confusing, having grown up and, you know, being schooled in a country that only used metric measurements. What the hell is an eighth? An eighth weighs 3.5 grams and it's called an eighth because it's approximately an eighth of an ounce. Aha, uh -huh. okay, thank you. So, when they asked how much I wanted, 
as I had already forgotten the difference between eighths and quarters and half ounces, I replied that, you know, a couple of grands would do me very nicely, thank you very much, Um, this being the only measurement I could remember in my somewhat anxious state. (laughs) Oh my God, Steve, you're, you're in your local park trying to buy drugs, what are you doing? Don't worry, Steve, standard midlife crisis, just, just proceed as planned. So, uh, having agreed on price and quantity, one chap then went off to get me the AMI, as he called it, short for amnesia haze, which I realized as I proceeded through the netherworld of um, substance use, that this was the chocolate and vanilla of cannabis, uh, at least in the UK, perhaps because it satisfies most people's requirements for getting high. I'm not sure. It's a sativa. It's it's very very it's it's I think it's a, a wonderful strain. So what happened then? Yes. So I remained in the park, right, chatting with the other guy about Max and the Chuck and Fetch co-on, and then finally my official weed vendor returned uh, and handed over you know small plastic baggie with some shreds of dried plant matter in it and uh, and claimed that this was a solid eighth of an ounce. He also assured me that he had, you know, allowed it to sort of tip over the scale just for moi. So, even more than an eighth then. What a generous guy. And all for 20 quid, which seemed super fair, as Google had also informed me that a gram of weed usually retails for about 10 to 15 pounds. And this, I had no reason to doubt him, was presumably 3.5 grams or more. So, quid's in. I thank the obliging weed peddler, even whilst being vaguely aware that like some kind of middle-aged Pinocchio, I am probably being duped, but I don't care, for I now have what I need. Thank you very much. Yay! Time for a word from our sponsor. So, the way it works if you do a podcast for the podcasting wing of Spotify, which is called Anchor, is that once you get over a certain number of listeners, the algorithm kicks in which then shows you the kind of sponsorship deals you might be able to access as long as you're willing to sell another piece of your soul to capitalism woohoo what i've noticed with this podcast compared to others that i've done before uh, perhaps because of the koan element or the mary oliver poem in the first episode I, i don't know how this works but anyway i'm genuinely chuffed to see that it turns out i'll be able to make the most money off my navel gazing by promoting an organization that i actually really love it's called the life you can save.org which does something truly wonderful for all of us you know good-hearted but cynical utilitarians who want to increase the amount we give to charitable concerns but often get caught up in tight-fisted analysis paralysis regarding who to give to. Enter your favorite philosopher and mine, Peter Singer, and his drowning child koan, which seals the deal, I think, on the ethical front in terms of whether we should consider ourselves responsible not only for what we do, for example, buying drugs from someone in a park, as, as well as what we refrain from doing, example, not buying drugs from someone in a park. Here is Peter Singer exploring this koan with the economist Steve Levitt. We should consider ourselves responsible both for what we do and for what we refrain from doing. Yes, I certainly still hold that. And my illustration of this comes from an early article that I published in 1972 called Famine, Affluence and Morality, in which I asked my readers to imagine that they were walking past a shallow pond and they noticed that there's a small child who's fallen in the pond. 
they could jump into the pond and rescue the child. There's no danger to them because it's shallow for an adult, but for this small child, it's too deep and the child is going to drown. Suppose that you were wearing expensive clothes that day, and so you thought, I'm not going to jump into the pond because I don't want to ruin my clothes. And after all, I'm not responsible for that child. It's not my child. Nobody asked me to look after the child. So I'm just going to walk on by the pond. Now, almost everybody that you put that example to will say that would be a, an awful thing to do. You'd have to be a monster. Sure. You're agreeing with me on that one, are you? Yeah, I do agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah, good. So, you know, you'd have to be a monster to put the cost of your clothes ahead of the life of a child. But if you agree with that, then you are saying that we're responsible for what we fail to do, that you failed to rescue the child and you're responsible for the fact that the child drowns when you could easily have rescued the child. And of course, as the title of the article suggests, I use that to make the argument that if we don't help people in extreme poverty who are dying from poverty-related causes when we could relatively easily and relatively cheaply save their lives, we also have responsibility for that. So, again, relating to my own moral failings, I, I spent a lot of time and effort trying not to do too many bad things. But there are so many things that I could do that I don't do, and I feel almost no guilt about any of those. I live in deep denial, although acknowledging intellectually that I do agree with it, although I live a morally inconsistent life with it. Well, I'm glad that you agree with it intellectually anyway. And I'm not asking for 100% consistency here because, again, I don't claim that for myself. But I do think once you recognize this, it should lead you to think about doing something for organizations that are effectively helping people in extreme poverty. And so I founded this organization called The Life You Can Save, which recommends some of the most effective independently assessed organizations that do this. And I hope that perhaps after our conversation, you'll go and have a look and you'll think, look, I could get a little bit closer to my intellectual agreement and have my values a bit more in harmony with my actions by doing something for some of these organizations. So if like Levitt and me, you also live a morally inconsistent life, but would appreciate feeling less crap about this, the answer is really very, very simple. Don't waste your time worrying about plant-based transactions carried out in parks. Simply set up a sum each month which you intend to donate to a rigorously screened, high-quality, cost-effective charity which has been delivered and vetted for you by The Life You Can Save, whose founding mission is simply this, to inspire more people to give to the most effective ways for tackling global poverty. And I'm sure you'll agree, super inspiring. So inspiring, in fact, that you'll be pleased to know that I will be giving back to them the very fee they're paying me to advertise their work on my podcast. What a generous fellow I am, right? The founding and fading myth of Adam and Eve is a great escape story. The psychoanalyst Adam Phillips reminds us and then takes us, as all good psychoanalysts must, to the mythical foundations of the stories we tell ourselves, both as individuals as well as a culture. Here's what he says. He says, Adam and Eve is the story of a failed breakout. Transgression is the attempt to find out exactly what it is that is impossible 
to escape from. I'm going to say that again because that's quite a little, a little mind squiggle there. Transgression is the attempt, the attempt, <laughs> successful or not, to find out exactly what it is that is impossible to escape from. Here's another quote from Phillips from his book about the escape artist Harry Houdini called Houdini's Box. Quote, Addicts to work and money, to drink and drugs, to political ideology and fundamentalist religion are the heroes and anti-heroes, the spirits of the age, because they, we, enact and dramatize our dilemmas about freedom and memory. Our negative ideals, what we are not supposed to desire, to like or to be like, are the materials from which we make our positive ideals. Our values are born out of perceived threat. So, how does this work for the faraway tree? Well, the escapist myth of the faraway tree is that its highest branches poke through the clouds via these sort of perforations or holes, maybe a meter across in diameter, and every few days, as if on a never-ending carousel, a new world with unique aspects particular to it comes to rest above the tree. One can then climb up the branch and onwards, via ladder, via a kind of staircase through the hole and beyond into an entirely new setting where all the strictures, all the binary positives and negative ideals of our lives are upended. These lands might be classified as spaces representing either facsimiles or panaceas for our very human anxieties. Take the land of topsy-turvy where everybody walks on their hands and everything is upside down, or the land of dreams, which works more like a Bunuel film or a Dali painting, you know, distorting or manipulating reality in weird and woozy ways. Also, anxiety-provoking ways, as often the characters get stuck in these worlds, as when the Sandman throws grit in the children's eyes to make them sleep. And yet, like all good escapist literature, either for children or adults, these lands, as fantastical as they seem at first, also distort in useful ways our earthbound dimensions. For don't we all crave for things to remain the same, especially if they're enjoyable, whilst also wanting them to change? My favorite magic faraway tree places as a child were those of pure wish fulfillment. You know, the land of do as you please, the land of toys, the land of goodies, and the land of presents. In order to consume the plant-based present that I had just bought for my bored and loveless self, I realized that I would also have to buy some kind of rolling tobacco, and if not, then I'd have to smoke the whole lot in one go, which I was really just far too stingy and cautious to attempt. So my next stop was the local newsagent where I learned that the days of buying, you know, a little pouch of Golden Virginia or Old Holborn, which I sometimes purchase in my 20s and smoke for a few months before stopping again when I felt its effect on my lungs. Th this no longer existed under our better and tighter legislation around carcinogenic products. If you're wanting 
rolling tobacco nowadays uh, to roll a joint, it turns out that you either have to buy a pack of cigarettes for a million quid or uh, an extremely large pack of rolling tobacco, which will set you back about 18 pounds. So that evening, after finishing with clients and having had my dinner, I sat on the sunny patio and rolled myself a tiny toothpick-sized joint using some of the plant material I'd bought of my stoner friends in the park, mixed with tobacco from the gigantic pouch of Golden Virginia that had cost practically as much as the weed itself. After smoking this, I listened to a little bit of Prince and ate a mango, which I can wholeheartedly say, both for Prince and the mango, was possibly the best musico mango experience that I had ever partaken of. The mango was perfectly ripe, chilled, doused in lime juice, cut into these, you know, thin slivers of sweet deliciousness. Hmm, it was good. And Prince's cover version of Joni Mitchell's Case of You, the the synesthetic audio uh, equivalent there, I think, of the fruitgasm. I mean, the whole thing was a fruitgasm. I find, for my taste, um but then check out my purple prose, right? That there is something very clipped and stiff upper lip um, in Enid Blyton's sensory descriptions of food, for which she's well known. Um, I mean, take the summary of the Google bun long before Google was a term in common parlance. The buns were most peculiar. They each had a very large current in the middle, and this was filled with sherbet. So when you got to the current and bit it, the sherbet frothed out and filled your mouth with fine bubbles that tasted delicious. Currants, sherbet, froth, yuck, but also kind of enticing, at least for a child, right? Here's a description of another blight and delicacy that I dreamed of tasting one day. Pop biscuits. You know, when I was in South Africa, I thought that maybe you could go and buy these on the shelves of, I don't know, Sainsbury's or something. As soon as you bit them, they went pop and you suddenly found your mouth filled with honey from the middle of the biscuits. I don't know why I thought as a child that that just sounded like the most sophisticated thing in the world. Or what about toffee shocks? A toffee shock gets bigger and bigger as you suck it instead of smaller and smaller. And when it is so big that there is hardly any room for it in your mouth, it suddenly explodes and goes to nothing. Was the toffee shock, I wondered as an adult a knowing wink to all those mothers reading the faraway treat to their children as bedtime stories, uh, you know, kind of essentially referring to the things that mummy and daddy might be getting up to later. That afternoon, buying, you know, some fruit on my way home and to have with my joint and thinking about Blyton, who... I'd recently watched a, a dramatised biography of on iPlayer, um, I think played by Helena Bonham Carter. I was struck by how all of these edibles involved a kind of surprise in the eating of them, perhaps the child's surprise in discovering a whole new world of tastes and sensations for the very first time, like the ultra-salty deliciousness of a piece of anchovy sitting in the melted red-white savoury gloop of tomato and res- mozzarella on a pizza or the jam filling a donut. 
but also the surprise of non-food-related experiences, one's first kiss and other early gropings after sensory consolation or stimulation. Also the surprise of a plot twist or a word used in an electrifying and unanticipated way. Surely there must have been a first time for all of these experiences too. And what a gratifying surprise that must have felt like in our consciousness. I, you know, I wish I could remember those, um, more of those, but I can't. And maybe also a similar surprise when that THC kicks in and you rediscover what it's like to be altered. Oh yes, this, this, this is what it's about. Remember you told me now, it's touching so Surely you touch mine Part of you Pause I need you From time to time These lines In my bloodline Holy wine You're so bitter So sweet home I could dream Barbara Stoney describes Blyton's description of food as being, quote, more reminiscent of an orgy in an Edwardian emporium than a modern child's idea of a good blowout. This is not just food, Stoney says. It is archetypal feasting, the author's longing for the palmy days of her own childhood. For most adults who write children's books... Once the communication barrier has been largely overcome, the main problem is to write what children want to read and yet at the same time remain intellectually honest to themselves, ourselves, in presenting the world as it really is. For Enid Blyton, it seems unlikely that any such dilemma raises its head, for she was a child. She thought like a child, she wrote like a child. Of course, she also had the craft of an extremely competent adult, but all the basic feelings in her books are essentially pre-adolescent, childlike. Piaget has shown us that children tend to make moral judgments purely in terms of good and bad, and that it is only with the advent of adolescence that we are sort of able to accept different levels of goodness and judge the actions of others according to their circumstances. Enid Blyton, however, has no moral dilemmas of this sort, and for this reason, perhaps, her books still satisfy children because they present things clearly in black and white with no confusing intermediate shades of grey. Don't you just hate those intermediate shades of grey? I do. So that night, the night of my first joint in God knows how many years, the mango landed... <laughs> the mango arrived at my grey taste buds, neither black nor white, but like a yellow-orange sunset, you know, just bursting with euphoric joy, a completely glorious and maybe even perfect slice of consciousness. And all without losing myself, there was still a self there to experience this. 
and a world that looked more or less the same as before I had smoked the magical ganja. This was surely the sweetest of transgressions I had undertaken for a good while, which only confirmed my supposition that altered states and the experiences one has whilst being altered might also function in our lives like Stephen Dunn's stairway, where after all the industrious hours of the day, shopping for groceries, housework, seeing clients, um, playing with, looking after Max, finally, finally we enter that room which no one else but you and me know about, and in so doing, escape for a few hours from the cage of self, the cage of consciousness, which experiences, as we all do, craving, dissatisfaction, and emptiness. Yes, of course I could have experienced all of this via meditation, and I have experienced all of this via meditation too, as well as other trance-inducing spiritual practices. But that takes conscientious work, right? To get to that moment that you can attain by going, Wasn't I working hard enough? Aren't you working hard enough? I'm sure you are. Wasn't I disciplined in so many other ways? Aren't you disciplined in so many other ways? Of course you are. Hard not to go there, is it? Perhaps this could be, I thought, my little escape stairway for a while. The wine decanted. The night about to unfold. Just before our love got lost, you said I am as constant as a northern star And I said Constantly in the darkness Where's that? If you want me, I'll be in the bar On the back of a cartoon coaster In the, the blue, blue TV, TV screen, screen light I drew a map of cannabis, cannabis. But your face gets done it twice. You're in my blood, you're my holy wine. You taste so bitter and so sweet. Oh, I could drink a case of you, darling. I would still be on my feet Or oh, I would still be on my feet Well, hopefully you're still on your feet after all of that. Hello again. Thank you for listening to another of these things. And um, hey, maybe you've got a cannabis koan that you'd like to chat about on the podcast or off the podcast. Uh, if so, get in touch. My website is stevewasserman.co.uk. I remember the time you told me love was touching souls But surely you touched mine Cause part of you pours out of me In these lines from time to time You're my blood, you're my holy wine You taste so bitter and so sweet Oh, I could drink a case of you, darling and I would still be on my feet Oh, I would still be on my feet